The Scream Kings are in no way responsible for any encounters with the paranormal, extraterrestrial abductions, eldritch insanity, hauntings, curses, hexes, demonic possessions, cryptozoological sightings, or any loss of sleep that results from listening to this podcast. This is the Scream Kings podcast. I'm Max George. And I'm Nathaniel Darkish. It wasn't so much the podcast. It was her face. The way she looked. Bum, bum, bum. I I had to, Nathaniel. I had to. (laughs) I tried to push past it. Hey, everybody. It's your two favorite podcasters. Or at least, hopefully, top ten, maybe? I don't know. No. Favorite. favorite. I'm not even my own favorite. <laughs> Fair. Either am I. Doesn't matter. Uh, I'm so excited to be back on the show. Nathaniel, you went the distance and recorded that awesome episode. Uh, my life has just been chaotic and crazy, and 2023 is hitting me with a big old fat stick. So thank you for, you know stepping up and running an interview all by yourself i mean i've done it before because life keeps happening (laughs) and oh boy does it happen do you want to share any of the real life horrors or should we just say uh uh let's just leave it at uh car repairs that feel like they're never ending and also my sewage line backed up and you know you 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 hear a gurgle after you wake up from a nap, and then you walk into your kid's room, and you step in, you know, two inches of septic water. So, hooray! Yeah, that it just doesn't get better than that. <laughs> no. These are the moments we live. <laughs> People say growing up is fun. It's not. Avoid it at all costs. Oh, yeah, no. I tell all of my, my students who are, you know, about to enter adult life, hey, uh, buckle up. It's going to suck. Yeah. There's going to be some cool stuff, and there's going to be a lot of freedom and great things, but also there's going to be a lot of stuff that you're going to freaking hate. Yeah, it's And they're always like, oh, no, I'm so excited for the future. And then whenever I have a conversation with them, even like a couple months later, like, oh, man, being adult sucks. Yeah, it, it's stuff that you don't really ever hear about or think about as a kid, and then all of a sudden, you know, you're you're stepping in water in your house, and you're like, oh, I was not prepared for this. What do I do? Uh, it's just. It's crazy. You got to roll with the punches. And sometimes, you know, things happen that you can't control. And the best thing for you to do is control what you can control. Yep. And it's just a never ending cycle of pain sometimes. (laughs) Yes. The melodrama is coming in hot today. It's it's true. But, you know, fair. You know, sometimes we we just got to grin and bear it. Oh, see how I transition there? (laughs) Because we're talking about smile. I know you're nervous. I just want to have a chat. I'm seeing something no one else can see except for me. It's smiling at me. (laughs) 
Yesterday, a patient in your care died brutally in front of you. I need to find an explanation for what happened. It's smiling at me. It's smiling at me. Yeah, we're gonna smile and talk about this movie. I think you and I have some interesting points of view. Uh, a lot of people love this movie, and we'll get into what we thought about it. Uh, spoiler alert, it's not super positive, but it's not also not super negative. It's kind of a divisive movie, I think. I think we, we both wanted to, to watch this movie and talk about it because, I mean, you know, with the end of the year, everyone's dropping their best of horror lists, and this keeps being in, like, a lot of people's, like, top three you know, three horror movies of 2022, uh, you know, rankings. And that, I, I mean, I, I haven't sat down and written the list, but I'm not sure if I would uh, quite put it that high. Yeah, when I was kind of going through, you know, the best movies of 2022, this one and Barbarian and um, X, uh, why can't I think of the other one? Oh, Pearl. Pearl. Those were kind of the, the big four. And I understand they're good movies. Uh, I've enjoyed them all. Pearl, I thought, was phenomenal. But this one was definitely lower on the, the totem pole for me. So I'm, I'm intrigued to hear what you think. And let's maybe get into it. Do you want to provide just a quick summary for our listeners? And, and again, if you have not seen Smile yet and you want to, uh, this is a spoiler-endorsed podcast. We will be talking about the plot. So you've yes. been warned. So, Smile is a film about a monstrous entity of some sort that basically um, destroys people's lives uh, using uh, unnerving smiles and, and appearing and, and being visible uh, to people who are infected with it. Um, hmm, until sounds they, familiar. Until they kill themselves. <laughs> um, basically, it just kind of goes from person to person um, and how. How that cycle works is, you know, a, a person sees some grinning person uh, gruesomely kill themselves. They are now infected. They begin to be haunted by strange, uh, you know, visions of people who aren't there. They're almost always doing this real, you know, unnerving smile at them. And then usually after around a, a week-ish, um, you know, between like five days and ten days, I'd say, uh, they end up uh, killing themselves uh, as well. And usually in, I mean, well, not usually, always in front of someone <laughs> else. This is, uh, our, our viewpoint character is named uh, Dr. Rose Cotter. Uh, so she is working at this uh, psych ward at a hospital um, and, yeah, has a, a young woman brought in who, uh, you know, is, is talking about, you know, seeing something and... and you know, then kills herself, and it's this very dramatic scene. Uh, and then, you know, suddenly uh, Rose is infected. So, you know, her her life begins unraveling. She starts to try to investigate this mystery and figure out what's going on. And, you know, if, she, if there's any way to stop it, uh, she finds out that there is one person who kind of broke the pattern, uh, not by killing themselves, but by killing someone else very publicly. Uh, she talks to that person who was, you know, of course, in prison, um, and then decides, you know, that that no, she she can try to tackle this uh, herself. Um, you know, she's kind of uh, over the the course of the the few 
previous days, you know, isolated herself from her family and from her fiance and uh, you know, coworkers and, and friends and stuff. And and so she goes to this uh, house that she grew up in, where uh, she saw her mother kill herself in a uh, un- unrelated to the uh, smile monster. <laughs> and um, you know, she she processes the grief. The smile monster kind of plays off of that that grief and trauma from her childhood. And we kind of find out that you know she could have allowed her or could have gotten help for her mother because her mother tried to say, you know, call for help. I, I made a mistake kind of thing. And she just kind of ran away. And so her mom died of an overdose. Uh, and then, of course, she has uh, her her former lover slash uh, cop who was investigating, you know, what went down at the hospital with at the beginning of the film, uh, whose name is Joel. Uh, he figures out where she is and, you know, arrives just in time for her to get possessed and kill herself. Uh, roll credits. Yeah. Um, excellent, excellent recap there, Nathaniel. Uh, let's just kind of dive in, I think, and, and talk about a lot of the good points that the movie does. Uh, like we mentioned, it is really... This film has done well. A lot of people do love it. Um, and there are a lot of good reasons for it. But the first thing that comes to mind before I even went and saw Smile was I was blown away by the marketing campaign for this movie. Um, I don't think you're on TikTok or Instagram much, but the the movie would plant these people in different social environments that just have these creepy, creepy smiles and then would either post about it on the Instagram or make TikToks about it. The one I remember seeing it was at some sort of sporting event, and they zoomed in on someone just kind of in the audience, smiling, super, super creepy. And that, along with a lot of the trailers, the trailer garnished quite a bit of buzz, too. It was a rather kind of gruesome and intense trailer when it first came out. It really created a hype train that got going pretty quickly. Uh-oh. Yeah, for, for, for sure. And, and um, yeah, I, I mean, I don't really spend any time at all on on tiktok or instagram but you know even still i was coming across articles that were talking about you know oh you know they you know bought a bunch of seats like right behind home plate at this baseball game and you have the creepy smiling people and and you know just have a a shirt that says you know has has the you know smile written in the kind of the font of the film and all of that um you know, and just staring into the camera the whole time doing the creepy grin. Like, oh, that is, that is, that is chef's kiss. Good, good marketing. <laughs> I love, I love crap like that. Yeah, it, it kind of reminded me of way back when, I think it was around we, when we first started the podcast with It. Um, the kind of the clown scare, I think, of 2016, 2017, whenever it mm-hmm. was. Uh, and how kind of this cultural phenomena started with the movie, and it it's fun. Um, my partner has some friends who, uh, this is a little unrelated to Smile, but they were reminiscing about when Game of Thrones first came out, how it was really cool and fun to participate in this kind of group hive mind about something, and that something was Game of Thrones. And, and Smile kind of made me think of that too, that Really, the marketing campaign for this film created this wave of horror enthusiasm. Enthusiasm, wow. That was fun. It, it was spooky and creepy, and I think it was very clever. I, I agree. I, 
I feel like you know we we've seen a, a you know handful of movies that have really had great success with these kinds of viral marketing things, right? Like, I mean, the the obvious one is uh, you know from when we were kids, uh, you know, with with the Blair Witch Project and and how many people thought it was real, you know, and we talked to Ben Rock on the show and he you know even told us about how. They had to take down the uh, uh, <laughs> yeah. missing posters that they had up uh, to promote the film at like Cannes Film Festival or something like that. Yeah, uh, because of of some real life uh, missing people that the police got kind of mad at them for having the fake ones. Things like that really just it's it's it grabs you right. Like it it makes you interested in a way that just uh, a well constructed trailer doesn't. You know, the, the, there is an art to promoting something, and I appreciate when movies like this take a big swing and really just do something un, unusual that really gets you going. This, well, this seems like something special. Well, and and also we live in a time where you know social media is just almost second nature. It is second nature. It takes almost a little bit more effort, I would say, nowadays to really kind of shake up the marketing world. It is very easy to just put something on Instagram or make a tweet about something, retweeting a a trailer, yada, yada, yada. So the ability for this creative team to push it one step further uh, really got me excited for the film. I will say that. Even more so than a, than a trailer. So... Outside of that marketing campaign, let's kind of dive into aspects of the film that we we really did enjoy. And the, but but before that, is there is there something like this that we can do to promote Scream Kings? No, I I, I mean if if we come up with something cool, but you know, I I don't have uh, that level of marketing genius. Um, but you know, I'm willing to accept ideas from our our listeners if anyone yeah. has cool ideas of how to promote us. Absolutely. Uh, I, I think something that I really enjoyed about this film right off the bat is it is very kind of, I don't want to say tropey, not yet, at least. The design of the film is very typical to other horror movies that exist in the industry, of course. We have the Ringu and the American adaption, the Ring and the Grudge, this idea that some sort of supernatural entity sticks itself to you and ultimately the clock starts running and you have some time before you die. Uh, it follows even, or uh, lights off, that abomination of a movie. Lights out. Lights out, excuse me. Uh, so this idea is very uh, ubiquitous. We all are very familiar with it. I think the and, millennial and... generation grew up with this idea, right? The Grudge and The Ring were some of the first horror movies a lot of people that our demographic watched. Mm -hmm. and, um, and at least in, in the American versions of all those, uh, every, I think every single movie that you've listed, it's, it's this, like, you know, attractive, like, 30-something white woman who is, you know, in a race against the clock to, to solve this mystery and try to, you know, purge herself of this curse. Yeah, and so I, I'm glad that this film kind of took that and tweaked it a little bit. It became something a little bit more sinister, I think. It, we talk a lot about um, positive things on this show that then are twisted, like Christmas, of course, into a horror lens. And the smile trope was really fun and spooky and kind of gross. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, I really appreciated that. I thought it was a fun twist on this cursed idea. It wasn't some, you know, hyper ghost crawling out of your TV chasing you or, you know, whatever. It, it presented itself in a very kind of twisted way. It, it kind of reminded me of how the Joker works. Kind of this idea that a Harlequin or a clown has this very beautiful smile and is supposed to make you laugh and feel good. Mm-hmm. But it doesn't. It's trying to kill you. And, and there's something gross and fun about that. Yeah, you're definitely kind of subverting, you know, the the expression of joy itself. So, um, yeah, no, I, I agree. Um, I don't know if it does anything that's so groundbreaking compared to, to some of those other films that we mentioned. Oh, for sure. Um, but, I mean, I, I, I like that formula, though. Like... Just because it's you know something has been done before doesn't mean that it's the wrong thing to do, right? You know, I, I talk about this with with a lot of my creative writing students all the time. You know, it's tropes exist for a reason, um, and as long as you are using tropes and being aware of them and and you know, using them deliberately and subverting things in interesting ways when you can, like tropes are great. Um, well, m- most of them. There, there are some that are problematic, some that are harmful to certain groups. But you know, as a whole, like this kind of uh, story arc isn't uh, a bad thing. And I like that. You know, in in this case in particular, you know, this is uh, a woman who is you know extremely competent. She is you know a very uh, skilled doctor. Um, it seems like, you know, she is very devoted to her work and very, like, self-sacrificing in a lot of ways. Yes, she has problems. Yes, she's a flawed person. Um, but, like, I like that we see kind of a lot of her competence shine through, even though things don't pan out for her. Um, you know, it, yeah, and, and that's nice. I would have to agree there with you as well. I think it was refreshing. A lot of times in horror movies we have protagonists who just are kind of dumb. Um, and not dumb in a professional sense or even a, like a, a street smart kind of a way. Just don't make authentic decisions. Yes. Um, and this movie, uh, I wouldn't say they do that fully, but Rose really is kind of head on her shoulders. She's trying to figure this out from a logical standpoint rather than just on a whim, if that makes sense. Yeah. Uh, so that's fun. The The trope is executed in a creative way with a smile. We have characters who present rational decisions, and it makes the horror feel very authentic, uh, but also with purpose. I'm not rolling my eyes at Rose every other scene because she's doing something that, of course, no one would ever do. Yes. Um, another thing I want to talk about, kind of shifting gears a little bit, is that opening scene is, oh, like, yes. perfect, right? Yep. Like, that opening scene is this, like, complete, uh, you know, like, like if, if the whole movie was just that one scene and it was just a short film, I would have walked away and been, like, 10 out of 10. Like, yeah, perfect, yeah. perfectly acted, perfectly paced. It, it built the tension in interesting ways. It had us asking questions, and it executed on that... Um, pun not intended but still appreciated um <laughs> the you know in in this really jarring upsetting way that really got under my skin uh which you know surprised me because you know this this movie is a, a very 
you know, kind of horror for the masses kind of thing. And and a lot of times, you know, when, when it's this kind of mass market uh, horror film, a lot of those don't really get under my skin too often. But that one scene definitely did. I, I definitely felt like, ooh, like I knew it was coming. You know it's coming the whole time. I mean, if, if you've seen an ad for this, you know what's coming. But it doesn't matter, because it was just so well executed. Well, and I, I, I think part of why it worked so well was it took its time. Yeah. There was a sense of panic and paranoia, but it didn't just get to the, the, the horror. It allowed us to kind of sit there with this kind of crazed, psychotic patient. We knew what was coming, but we didn't know when or how or at what speed. And it really just took a deep breath and and that was great it was an amazing and authentic way to just dive into this film mm-hmm. um, ugh, thinking about it right now and it's kind of giving me the shivers because it, it was just so well thought out and all i can say it it took a deep breath and let it be scary to be scary it wasn't trying too hard yeah um and and you know not not just that scene but you know there there are a fair number of scenes throughout this film that really worked very well right like the when it did deliver on a lot of these scares they were well constructed it you know i wouldn't say necessarily i was surprised at almost any given point and again we'll and we'll get into this more once we talk into the cons of how how many of these creepy moments kind of got spoiled by the trailers um but the the acting, the delivery of of these you know different actors to kind of have this all you know everyone having the same unnerving smile, and you know how it would kind of play with our expectations in interesting ways. Some of those were were just really good. You know, uh, one one of the the most upsetting moments for me um, was this birthday party scene, right? Like, oh yeah, when. Uh, you know, Rose has been told, you know, that she can't go uh, into work. She needs a few days off so she can kind of, you know, mentally recuperate from what she just witnessed. Um, she ends up, you know, being able to go to her nephew's birthday party, which she, you know, was originally was supposed to work during. And so she, like, gets him a nice train set, and she's, you know, so excited to, like, be a good aunt and, and you know, like, actually kind of go outside of her bubble a little bit, and then she's sitting at this party, and, you know, of course we're getting glimpses of, of, of the creepy smiling going on, but then, yeah, he opens his present, and surprise, surprise, the, the cat who has been missing, who, you know, we, we expect to cut, turn up in some way, is, you know, dead and in, in the package instead of the train set, and it was really well done. Like, okay, I didn't see that one coming necessarily i knew that the cat was going to come up dead in some upsetting way i didn't expect him to pull that and that one really worked yeah and i really enjoyed kind of the scene where rose is at home she has this therapist that's been working with her the therapist comes over to the house and they're they're talking about everything going on and then she gets a phone call from her therapist and surprise the the person who came over to her house is actually the monster i thought that was really fun and i actually did not see that coming and so it was kind of this the call is coming from inside the house moment that was refreshing and new and fun oh i i totally saw that one coming but i i still <laughs> loved every second of it 
Um, and then we, we have to talk about some of the practical effects that happen towards the end, uh, when Rose is finally confronting kind of her past and her grief. She does encounter the monster, and I think the actual monster reveal was very spooky. How the mom looked with just kind of this gaping smile, kind of the, the gums were receding and you could see all of the teeth, and then it went even further and it was, you know, the flesh was peeled back and it was a smile inside a smile inside a smile inside a smile. Like, ugh, it was gross. Teeth are gross, gums are gross, mouths are gross. So to layer that all on top of each other was just, it, it was fun. It, it, it turned into a really good monster movie all of a sudden. Yeah, I, I felt like it, it looked like, like the creature design was really good. Um, there's other things about that scene that didn't work for me as much, but, like, yeah, effect-wise, design-wise, all of that, oh, very good. Um, I, we've alluded to this a little bit, though, um, in that I think because it is kind of a, a tropey idea with the cursed entity following someone around, um, but because our, our characters created and made very good informed decisions for the most part, the overall plot of Smile did feel pretty succinct and concise, which I appreciate in a horror film. Uh, you and I had discussed a few words about Barbarian, which we plan on doing an episode as well. That film really kind of locked in on target and was concise in the beginning and then kind of unraveled Meander. into a hot mess. Uh, smile, I mean, to give credit where credit is due, I, I think it was a very, you know, A plus B equals C kind of film, and it was nice and good to watch that way. You mm -hmm. know, it, it was satisfying. That's the word I'm looking for. I, I, I agree. It, it was satisfying. It spent the, the time on the scenes that I think were the most interesting and most scary. And then when it was giving us, you know, kind of some of the other exposition and stuff, it was moving at a pretty decent pace. Um, you know, I, I felt like a lot of the exposition was pretty natural. There was a few, oh, I figured this thing out, and I'm going to sit and explain it to you for five minutes. That happened a couple of times, but it wasn't as bad as a lot of movies are in this kind of, you know, how a curse works sort of subgenre. Um <laughs> And and yeah, so I, I felt like that that was good. Um, the acting I thought was was really solid, especially from our kind of our main cast. Um, you know, uh, Sozie Bacon as Rose really did a good job. Um, Kyle Gellner uh, as Joel it was pretty solid. Um, yeah, I I really like Kyle. Uh, he's been in Scream, Haunting in Connecticut. I feel like he has a very kind of horror esque profile when it comes to his movies. Uh, I enjoy him. I mean, I feel like he's no Tony Collette, but he's good. <laughs> yeah. Um, man, we should talk about Haunting in Connecticut sometime because that one is uh, a movie that I think is better than it gets any credit for. Uh, agreed. It, it was one of those movies that I watched that reinvigorated my love of horror back when I was a teenager. Yeah. Like, I, have a... I don't think it's, you know, freaking The Exorcist, but it's. it's... <laughs> I have a special. I have a special spot in my heart for Haunting in Connecticut. Not okay. the sequel that does not happen in Connecticut, but that's another time. The Haunting in Connecticut 2, Georgia. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, uh, so that's going, going on the docket. Um, 
Outside of kind of the acting, though, what I really loved was the music of this film. Mm -hmm. I thought it played a very important role in the plot. It kind of was that spooky, discordant, uh, you know, type of melody that we hear all the time in horror movies. But it, it didn't feel contrived or fortuitous. It it played a role and it did it very well. Mm -hmm. So so props, music. Yeah, I I really liked the music a lot. I thought it was very effective. Um, well, should we move on to things we didn't like as much? Yeah, and, and there's something kind of that I want to hit pretty hard here right off the bat. Uh, with the amazing marketing campaign that this film had, I think something that really did a lot of harm was the trailer. Um, yes. The trailer revealed a lot of the main scares of the film. Um, I think by the end of the film, I was starting to count, actually. (laughs) Uh, It was that bad. And I think there were maybe two scares that I hadn't seen or or alluded to within the trailer. Mm -hmm. Which was really frustrating. Uh, It really weakened the gravitas of this movie for me. and. a few months ago, before the holidays, I, I reached out to our good Scream Lord or Scream Knight. I can't remember what we uh, knighted or bestowed upon him. Uh, Andy Scahill. And asked him for some recommendations of horror. I was looking for a good horror movie. And he did recommend Smile. He thought it was phenomenal. And I, we kind of had this little chat back and forth about how I was super disappointed that the trailer revealed a lot of the scares. And he made note of we shouldn't judge a movie based on the trailer. And I want to get your thoughts on that, Nathaniel, because whether the marketing team doesn't like hold up our director's vision for the film, it, it still can undermine the movie, in my opinion. Oh, you have sure. To, you have to be thoughtful and kind of cognizant of what you're showing in the trailer for the movie to be successful. I, I don't think they're mutually exclusive here yeah um so i think um from everything i know about the uh film business you know really we are dealing with completely different teams of of people right like you know the the director has a vision you know they're they're working with the editors and and everything like that to create the film that they want to create the marketing team is handed a bunch of, you know, footage that they can cut any way that they want. And, you know, their, their job is to get butts in chairs. And from, from that perspective, the marketing for Smile was extremely effective. Not just the cool viral marketing that we talked about that, and, and gushed over, but, yeah, like the trailers that we saw, you know, got people to go, ooh, I want to go see that movie. That looks scary. And so, from that perspective, it's extremely successful. They they did their job well. However, um, I really, really wish that um, directors were able to be part of that discussion more, right? Like, I feel like a lot of times, spoilers um, and, you know, twists and turns and stuff and and the the experience of sitting in a theater or sitting at your home and watching movie 
you know, from beginning to end is is very specifically crafted, right? It's it's meant to be an experience um that hopefully, you know, a, a thoughtful director is is leading you through all the way through. And so, you know, that isn't going to take into consideration what you've already been shown. And frankly, um, you know, to to me there are trailers that do succeed in making you want to see the movie but also don't spoil anything. Uh, the the best example I can think of off the top of my head was uh, 10 Cloverfield Lane. Like, that trailer, it was, you know, it, it dropped like a week before the movie came out, and it was, you know, just the... Uh, oh, what's the name of the song? Um, some song from the 70s that the name is escaping me right now from the Turtles? Um, anyway the the song is playing and then it's just you know and it slowly gets a little bit you know kind of creepier soundtrack vibes as it goes on but it's mostly just little teeny snippets of it looks like they're in a bunker or something but you don't really know why or what's going on or you know what the relationship between the characters is that got my butt in the in the chair you know i saw that opening night and so i think it can be done well I think that trailers regularly ruin the experience of of moviegoers, but the end goal is different. You know, if I'm selling a book uh, to an agent or an editor, I'm selling that, and I am going to spoil stuff because it's about them buying it. Yeah, that's I, different I, than me trying to have a reader experience it. For sure. I think they, of course, go hand in hand. I am the first to admit that sometimes I will watch a movie trailer and it gets me super hyped and I'm jazzed for it. And I watch that trailer over and over and then I get on Reddit and TikTok and start seeing all of the different theories that are going on based on the trailer. And then I get into the movie and it's completely left field has nothing to do with anything that I was hyped for. Mm -hmm. Um, Multiverse of Madness, for example, is a movie that when I first watched that film, I was very disappointed because of how hyped I had gotten from the trailer. And so I think you bring up a lot of good points here, Nathaniel, in that, you know, the director and the producers, they have an artistic vision for this film, but that vision can't be accomplished unless there are butts and seats. And so the marketing team really has to to push a trailer that is efficient and and gets people excited but there's a fine line i think and especially with horror a lot of the mechanics of these films that work or don't work have to be uncertain or mm -hmm. occult and i just think smile dropped the ball here uh you know you talk about cloverfield lane another movie that i really appreciated and was excited about because of the trailer was men uh it's an a24 film uh, the movie is very body horror it talks a lot about kind of the, the dichotomy of feminism versus masculinity there are a lot of kind of subversive discussions going on about the film but the trailer gave you very little to be excited about and sure maybe the film wasn't as successful in theaters but i appreciated the film more because i was excited from the trailer and then i got that artistic vision from the movie 
um, it, it just kind of depends. I, I think trailers serve a very good purpose and we can put too much weight on them, but mm. they, have to, they have to do justice to the director's artistic vision as well. So, soapbox complete. Yes. Yeah, yeah. It, it really just uh, comes down to this idea of what what are they gauging the metric of their success off of, right? And you know, it seems like the marketing team. It's how many people go and see it the opening weekend and stuff like that. I think the the directors they tend to be more interested in looking at what are people saying about it. How do they feel about the film? What's the discussion? Uh, are people you know recommending it to their friends? Those are very different things uh, very different realities and so like i get why it happens but it does frustrate me frustrate me endlessly and i've yeah largely started avoiding most elements of trailers i'll, I'll watch you know a trailer if i'm at the movie theater but if i'm just you know casually checking out stuff online usually i'll watch part of a trailer and if it you know grabs my interest then i go oh, okay cool i want to see that and i turn it off halfway through the trailer even <laughs> Because I'm, I'm just getting tired of, of all of the good stuff getting spoiled and scared. Or, and, and all of the scares not being scary. Um, right. And I, and I put myself in the shoes of a director who's created this, you know, passion project. And then I show up to the premiere. And if the trailer hasn't done it justice, I'm going to be pissed. Right? But my marketing team didn't get people to watch my film. Yep. Um, it's, it is one of those things I don't think people usually think about when it comes to the entertainment industry. I would love to talk to a trailer editor and get their perspective when it comes to film. So if you're out there and you're listening, hi, I'd like to talk to you. Yeah. That'd be a, a really interesting, uh, interesting episode. Okay. Um, well, let's move on to some other stuff. Um, I will say uh, one of the first things that I think both of us were, were feeling with this movie is that the scares as the film went on really lost a lot of their momentum. Um, you know, that first scene, as we mentioned, was like perfect. After that, it, it really didn't feel all that scary when we'd have someone smiling. It was it was weird and unnerving, sure. But by the 30th time it happened, it was just kind of like, <laughs> oh, oh there, there it is. Yeah, I, I want to say two things in relation to this. The first is, um, with kind of these curse movies, once the horror is revealed, it's not as scary after that initial reveal. Uh, the caveat to this, I think, is it follows. I think that movie really kept you on your toes. Uh, the second consideration here is, I just watched Terrifier 2 a few weeks ago. And that movie just kind of hits the ground and throws as much gore as it possibly can at you within the first 15, 20 minutes. And so the rest of the film, they're trying to continually outdo themselves. And they never accomplish that. And, and I feel like Smile did that in a different way. That first opening sequence really sets the tone. But then the tone kind of disappears from the rest of the film. They don't keep you on the edge of your seat except for these little gratuitous moments that we've talked about yeah well and, and along those lines i i think it's because you know we started with a, a kill right yeah and then we're just gonna see weird stuff until she's finally pushed to kill herself that's that's the whole nature of the curse yeah and so a lot of the stakes don't feel like they're there 
I'll I'll say that again, yes, the the creepy smile is in fact creepy and unnerving, but at a certain point it feels like like a, a horror version of Where's Waldo as opposed to, you know, <laughs> an actual threat. Um and due to this, I feel like as we get towards the climax of the film, we lose a lot of kind of the authentic narrative. It starts to feel like the creator creators of the film were piecemealing some sort of plot. They were trying to wrap up wrap up the mythos and the lore of this demonic entity, but also talk about grief and it, it started to feel very derivative. Um and predictable and boring, if I'm honest. Yeah, I, I agree. I, I felt like, you know, tying it into the past was uh, an interesting vein to explore if they had done something more with it. But they, they never really quite, I don't know, never, never quite threaded that needle for me, right? Like, all of the all of the stuff is there you know the idea that you know she has experienced trauma this is a trauma monster basically that you know to me that seems like it should have been the thing that allowed her to overcome the curse yeah instead of succumb to it yeah it it's it's that the the pieces were there um, for her to be able to overcome the trauma. I mean, she's a psychologist, for, for heaven's sake. And on top of that, has, has this, you know, personal experience with trauma. And so, you know, if she had been able to turn it back around and say, I've been living with this kind of trauma my whole life, you don't have any power over me. That is interesting. And, and I think would have been a more satisfying ending. And, and you know... You, you know me. I, I, I give me, give me depressing endings all the time. I, I, I didn't need it to be a happy ending, but it, it almost felt like that would have been more true to what the themes it was exploring were. I don't know. It just, it felt like it, it, it was setting it up in an interesting way, and then the, they kind of lost a couple pieces of the puzzle, and then just kind of shoved them together, and like, oh, it's done. Yeah, that's where I feel like it has uh, kind of moved into the derived category here, is you bring up some excellent points. This this woman is a psychiatrist. She should know about the nuances and complications that trauma bring. And if this monster is an embodiment of trauma, especially when they talk about, you know, you have to be seen killing someone for it to be passed on, you know, it, it alludes that the curse is passed on through a traumatic event, right? Mm-hmm. Dive into that. Talk about that. Um, that is a huge, huge topic that would be so poignant for our generation and the next generation. Trauma is something that we don't fully understand entirely, and it's terrifying. Like, I had a panic attack the other day from trauma. It, it is horror. And so to try and take this circle peg and fit it into the square hole sure it's gonna fit but it won't make sense uh it, it was frustrating real frustrating because yeah it just felt like a missed opportunity yeah it, it made i it didn't make me feel like i had wasted my money or wasted my time but it made the movie fall flat for me 
it it had a message that was there, but then right at the end it was like, eh, nah, we're not gonna go there because we want butts and seats. Mm-hmm. Um, it was frustrating, and and I think part of that too was the characters started out really authentic and making good logical decisions, and then by the end of it, Rose was just flying by the seat of her pants. Um, she just felt like she was becoming a character rather than a protagonist. I agree. Um, and, and like some of that, I, I will give it that it, it did do a pretty good job of establishing, you know, that she was, you know, losing sleep and that she was, you know, becoming more and more just kind of frazzled and unhinged because of the, the nature of the haunting. Sure. Uh, or, or of the curse. Yeah, absolutely. I'm, I'm willing to buy that, but I did want her to make a few more grounded decisions in that I... last chunk of the movie based on her expertise. It, it would be like watching Alien and seeing Ripley like forget a lot of the wise decisions that she was making for the first three quarters of the movie and then doing some like really dumb crap in the last quarter. Yeah, that, that's what I'm getting at, too. I, I think Spiral into Madness is fine, but she's also... She has a medical degree, you know? Her life still has rules that it should be following. Um, mm. Anyway, I am going to get heated. Um, we talked about the music kind of being a character in the film. And I'm trying to pick my words carefully here because I know you and I both feel the same way about this. I think they tried to make the camera also a character in the film, but the, the camera was drunk. <laughs> um, oh, boy. Yeah, it, 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 uh, it was showing up to, to set drunk and, and raving and demanding that they just do a... So what we mean by this is I love it when cinematography kind of takes a, a different approach and this film they do a really good job of doing these cool inverted upside down shots and one two three even four hell even five like cool it's artistic it's stylish i like it it's unnerving it's different not the whole goddamn movie though nothing <laughs> yo what what what's with this i i don't know like Okay, so so the first time it happened, I I I thought of this scene in Hereditary, and I'm sorry, we always compare it to Hereditary, but it's perfect, so you know, whatever. Um, where she is walking down the hallway to go talk to the the secret evil witch lady. Anyway, um, she's walking down this hallway, and it's this kind of like weird upside down shot, and it's like kind of un unsettling. And, like, it did a good job of kind of capturing how out of control her life felt. You know, it, it suggested some stuff about this character and, and how, how she was feeling and, and how she was interpreting the world in a especially tense and interesting moment. I, I feel like the cinematographer for this film saw that and just basically thought to themselves, I am going to do that 150 times in the next movie I do because it's going to capture how chaotic things feel. <laughs> no, because at a certain point it feels like a silly gimmick, not a, a, an interesting artistic choice. And so, yeah, like it 
again, the first time it happened, I'm like, oh, okay, that was kind of a weird place to do that, but, like, you know, it's not the worst decision in the world. But then they just kept doing it, like, at the start of almost every scene that, that they could have, like, a landscape or, <laughs> you know, a, a wide shot that wasn't focusing on a character. Every single time that was the case, let's just flip it upside down for no reason and then, like, weirdly zoom in and, and, and set it right. So many times. It, it was so distracting. You know, I, I spent more time thinking about that than I was thinking about how scary the situation was, which is uh, the opposite of what a camera should be doing. Yeah, I can't agree more. Um, again, like I said, I, I think it's fun. I think it's artistic. But once, once you start relying on that for an element of horror, it becomes very kitschy almost. Uh, it, it starts to feel tedious uh and if i push and if i strain i can make a comparison like there's this christian song of course jesus wants me for a sunbeam or uh if you chance to meet a frown i can't even remember um but if you chance to meet a frown do not let it stay quickly turn it upside down and smile your cares away or whatever uh, and so maybe that's what they were thinking. Like, it's the well, same. If, um, you know, if, in, if they had had that song in the movie, <laughs> sure, I, I would have been more willing to buy that. Right, and that's where you know the last part of the movie. It's like, why are we? Why do we keep flipping it over? It just felt. Yeah, it got annoying. It got annoying. Mm-hmm. Uh, another thing that I'm really starting to be annoyed with in horror movies is this unbelieving spouse slash partner significant other um in the film rose has what we assume is a very committed partner uh they are very you know stalwart individual it seems but the minute she starts feeling uncomfortable and seeing things he completely abandons her on an emotional standpoint and i don't care what you believe if you're a religious person if you're agnostic if you're atheist if your partner starts saying that they're seeing things, I do not believe our first gut reaction is to be like, oh, you're nuts. I can't be with you. You're crazy. It just, it's getting old. I think it's an antiquated trope that we're using. Mm-hmm. Oh, and, and like, they, they try to justify it, right? They had him, you know, drop some lines about him, you know, knowing about her, her mother's mental illness and suicide and stuff like that. and. And that's why he's on like high alert. Okay, I'm I'm willing to buy that. If at any point he had asked any follow up questions, but it was basically just yeah. Every time she would start talking about it at all, she's like, "I'm seeing things," and, and other people aren't aren't you know that aren't seeing. And like she literally gets that far, doesn't explain even what it is, uh, any of her thoughts about it, anything like that. Suddenly he just like shuts her down. And was like, "Oh my gosh, you're 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 crazy like your mom." Yeah, does he not know about this? Like, it feels so contrived to know about all of this backstory that Rose is carrying and this trauma, again, that she's working with, this generational trauma, and the minute it starts to ripple at all, he's just like, nope, you're nuts, peace out, you're insane. Yeah, I just, you know, I'm willing to, to think, or to, to accept this idea that, that that is his worry and that is where he is going if he, 
you know, listened or asked any follow-up questions at all. Yeah, and I'm going to say, hands down, and I'm very comfortable saying this, if you have a partner and you're experiencing any sort of mental health and you bring it up to them, and their reaction is to treat you like you're insane or you're just seeing things or they don't believe you, get out of that relationship. Like, just because they're not experiencing what you're experiencing doesn't make it any less valid, any less real, regardless of what it is, a ghost or anxiety. Like, show up and support your loved ones, regardless what they're going through. <sighs> Soapbox <Right>. 2! <laughs> Completed. Yeah, you know, get people the help that they need, but you know, do it in a way that's that's helpful and and uh, you know, co- uh, collaborative with with uh, your loved one instead of just surprise. I I secretly invited your uh, yeah. therapist here without your consent. Yeah, uh, we're we're ambushing you. Worst possible way. Anyway, yeah. By the way, that that therapist very bad at at her job. Yeah. Uh, anyway we could go on and on yes um at the end of the day i think i saw this film with my partner and some very close friends and they loved it absolutely loved it and i felt a little weird because i felt like i missed something and after i had been thinking about it and thinking about it um you and I are horror critics. When we go see a horror film, it's it's kind of hard for us to separate the, the novelty of going to a movie and observing it with that critic's eye. Yeah. And while I agree this is a good film, I also can hold space for, I think it is, we talk a lot about kind of gateway horror on this podcast. PG-13 horror that kind of presents itself and gets people excited about horror. I think Smile is the next level of that. It's rated yeah. R, so the, the gore and kind of the, the horror is a little more advanced and intense. And that serves a purpose, but from a critic's standpoint, I was left wanting a lot more, and I got bored a few times, it became predictable, and I felt like I was watching The Grudge or The Ring, but with a twist. And those movies are great, they, they're iconic, they're classics, but at the end of the day, I don't want to rewatch those. I want to watch something that's actually going to scare me and push the edge a little bit. Yeah. Does that make me sound like a douche, or am I okay? <laughs> I, I feel like that's, that's fair, because it's, it's just simply, you're, you're not saying that it, it isn't a valid, scary, worthwhile film. Uh, especially for for people who are at that particular level of horror uh, experience, um, no, I I think it's fair, and I, I I don't want that to come off like just because you enjoy this film means you're of a lesser horror kind of higher. You're a noob. That, that's that's not what I'm saying, but I mean we're almost <clears throat> at a hundred episodes of this podcast. We watch horror movies with a different lens than I think most people, and that's okay. Um, you know, we enjoy it on a different type of level. It's not like I want to stop going to see these kinds of horror films in theaters, because I won't. I, mm-hmm. At the end of the day, I enjoyed it. I'm glad I spent money on it. Uh, but, you know, I, we can hold space for two different opposing opinions. Yeah. 
And and you know, I I will even you know add that a lot of people who are you know at at the same level or even beyond us you know also love this movie in terms of their horror uh, bona fides. Um, <laughs> so you know that's that's fine. I I had a lot of fun. It made a lot of money. That's going to get more uh, you know money going into to horror movies, and I've, I'm all about that. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean it. It created this idea that horror is still viable, it's still alive, and that's important. Yeah, it's it's good that we get a good, you know, gazillion dollar box office making, you know, horror movie like that every every year or so. So that way we can uh keep keep the, the good times rolling. Um I know that this film was based on a short story. We short short film short film, excuse me talked a little bit about how that opening scene really hit hard and i do agree that this film would have been more successful for me if it was a short film do you want to maybe give us more insight into what you know about the short film uh yes uh so i just watched it on youtube it is available uh the short film is called laura hasn't slept uh and the actress um in this short film is the same one who plays Laura at the beginning of the film, the one who you know, kills herself in front of Rose. Um, it it was fine. Um, I, I, I Laura hasn't slept. Kind of takes a little bit of a different angle on this whole thing. It isn't you know how like the smile monster. Um, it's it it is kind of just more of a a proof of concept in in a lot of ways. Uh, so it's you know the same uh, person who is the writer director of Smile, uh, Parker Finn. Um, basically it's a, uh, discussion between a therapist and a patient, uh, about how she hasn't slept. She's afraid cause she's, you know, there's a, a thing that's like, you know, taking the faces of people around her and, you know, she's being haunted by this and, and she just, you know, can't even trust herself to sleep. She has to be on the lookout all the time. And then, you know, of course it, it kind of devolves into the, the therapist, um, going you know well how do you know that i'm not the thing and then you know it kind of goes into like a weird dream sequence everything's falling apart kind of thing and then you know roll credits um it's it's fun it's 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 a it's a decent short film i I was really hoping that the short film would be basically yeah like what the first scene of smile is It, it was a little bit more surface level than that but you know, at the very least, I, I felt like it was fun. Um, you know, we, we see this a lot, right? Like, we see a lot of first-time directors kind of uh, getting their shot in the horror genre by making these kinds of short films. You know, a, a few come to mind. Uh, you know, Mike Flanagan making the Oculus short film. Um, we had Lights Out, uh, which I thought was a better short film than movie. Now that mm-hmm. it was amazing but it was fine you know even the uh australian you know film about dementia relic um you know that that had a short film uh that was kind of playing with some of these same ideas you know this kind of thing happens a lot and and i think you know having a a good short film that's a good proof of concept you know does kind of show you know that these directors uh, can can give give some some effective scares and and you know, have something that that's worthwhile, and then they, yeah, usually end up getting some sort of offer from a studio, and, and that's what happened here with Parker Finn. I I like seeking these short films out. I I really enjoy, you know, finding these films that that you know then 
end up getting fleshed out in a in a bigger way. Uh, and you know, yeah, sometimes I like it even better than the uh, film that it, it uh, creates. I in in this case, you know, again, I feel like uh, Laura hasn't slept was a, a f- fun little spooky short film. And I think you know the fact that that Parker Finn came from that short film background is why that opening scene of the film works so well um, of Smile. But uh, yeah, that's that's uh, kind of all I had to say about that. You know, it's it's worth checking out. It's like seven minutes long. It's on YouTube. It, you can find it pretty easy. Nice, thanks, Nathaniel. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's go into kind of wrapping up the show with our crowns and our screams here. Um, as far as crowns go, I gave it a four. Um, I think I'm rating movies a lot harsher than you. Because <laughs> uh, you gave it a seven, right? Yep, I gave it a seven. You said it was good. Yeah, it was just fine. It was good. Five to me is good. <laughs> so, so one out of five. Because uh, four, see, see to me on, on that ten scale, five is, it's, it's, perfectly meh four is like i kind of disliked it yeah i i think i did kind of dislike it i i wanted more again i think the marketing campaign and everything that was going on led me to believe it was going to be something different and it wasn't and i just i left feeling very meh but i think what's happening is maybe we need to quantify our scale here of what does one through ten actually mean? Well, I mean, we're we're ninety ninety episodes in. If we haven't done it yet, I think we're good. It's fine. You you gave it a four. I <laughs> I gave it a seven. I I like this film. I I had fun with it. Um, you know, yeah. I did. I like that first scene like ten out of ten. Absolutely. And and so yeah, like a lot of my score honestly comes just from how much I love that opening scene. But like as a whole, it was fun. It had some creepy moments. It was pretty well made. Yeah, you know, like I'd say like six and a half to seven is is kind of the range I'm looking at. But the things I think it did well, it did extremely well. And I'll, you know, that that's where that score's coming from. Fair, fair enough. I like it. Uh, let's talk about screams. Yeah, screams. I gave it a five. When it was scary, it did it pretty well. But it never kept it up or did different things with the horror. So mm-hmm. it was very middle of the road for me. Yeah, same. Uh, it's solid five from me. It, Yeah, the, the good scares were really good. Uh, but everything else was Where's Waldo of the Creepy Smiling Person. <laughs> All right. Well, that is Smile. Outside of the, you know of uh, a backing up septic system uh how have you been saying spooky <laughs> uh yeah i wanted to just briefly mention two movies i've watched that i have just been blown away by uh the first one was on shutter it's called Deadstream, and i i watched this film originally by myself and it, it was good i really enjoyed it and it was a fun kind of a party horror movie uh, it's about this streamer who's losing followers for some things that are not very PC. And so he does this idea where he goes to this haunted house and, you know, it kind of unravels from there. It, it feels very Evil Dead, OG Evil Dead-esque, where it's campy but scary at the same time. Mm-hmm. Had a blast watching it for the first time. 
And then the second time I watched it with some dear friends of mine and come to find out the house that they filmed it at is actually a notorious house that my friends know all about. Um, a lot of lore about it, a lot of creepy stuff. I'd love to have them on to discuss it. And so watching them watch this film, it's not that they were scared from the film, but they just have had so many spooky stories about this actual house that it got into their heads a little bit. And it was just one of those moments where you feel proud because you found a horror movie that actually scares other people. And, and the world just feels better. <laughs> it's just, it's a special feeling. It, it was so fun to see how scared they got. Not again, because the film was scary, but because of all of this lore that they knew about the house and seeing it on the inside and the outside. And it just freaked them out. It was great. Um, I'd love for you to watch it and do a movie with them on it because they just have so much history and backstory from it. It was cool. Uh, that sounds fantastic. We need to get that uh, scheduled. Um, the other movie that I saw is quite possibly in my top three favorite films of all time. Um, I think it's the best film of 2022. Uh, that is The Menu with Anya Joy Taylor. And Taylor Lord Joy. Voldemort, sorry. Um, we want to do an episode about this film because I have so much to say about how well it was done. Mm -hmm. I don't think it's a perfect film, per se, but I have not enjoyed a movie in the theaters like The Menu since probably Hereditary or Midsummer. Um, blown away. Blown away! It was great. So good. To the point where one of my best friends made like a porcelain creature of myself, and I'm wearing a marshmallow hat and a tunic of chocolate. <laughs> or vice versa, I can't remember. I mean, it'd be vice versa for the film. Yes. I just watched yes. it yesterday for the first time, so uh, thank that's you. why I know. Um, which is awesome. Uh, I could watch this film over and over and over and not get bored of it. Uh, I cannot recommend it high enough. It was great. But I think, yeah. I, I think it spoke to me on different levels than may, it may have spoke to you, so we can get into it in another episode. Yeah, I, I'm really excited to talk about that one. Because I have a lot of thoughts, and I've been kind of chewing over it and, and thinking about it. I, I like to... Pun intended, were you chewing or were you tasting, Nathaniel? Uh, well, mm. I mean, you need to properly chew to taste. I'm just making a joke. You know, a lot of, like, airy, like, you know, open-mouth chewing just to uh, properly yeah, aerate the, the, the taste buds. The, um, the, ta the tannins <clears throat> of the, the food that you're consuming. Yes, exactly. <laughs> uh, I, I really liked it. Um, but, yeah, I, 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 again, maybe had slightly... Uh, different level of love uh, for it than, than you did, which I think will make for some very good discussion. Sure. So, uh, also, uh, an upcoming episode. We have so many of those in the docket right now. It's oh, wonderful. We have uh, so many cool uh, people. In fact, that's one of the ways I'm saying spooky, is just been in communication with a lot of great people to have on the show. Um... Yeah, you've been taking over my job as far as networking goes. You've been doing awesome, Nathaniel. Appreciate it. And and by that, really, it's just I've been responding to emails that people <laughs> have, have been sending to us, which um, 
It's Love great. That. Thank Keep you it up. For, for reaching out everyone who has. Um, and yeah, we, we got some uh, really, really exciting stuff in the works. I'll just say that. Uh, but I don't want to say any specific names yet because who knows? Sometimes things fall through. Um, hopefully these won't because they're going to be really dope episodes. Um, besides handling some great communication with exciting people, um, I have been staying spooky uh, quite a bit in the literary world. I, I wanted to talk about uh, a book that I just finished listening to called Ghost Eaters by Clay McLeod Chapman. Um, it's really well constructed. Basically, the, the concept here is uh, what if there was a drug that uh, is called Ghost that allows you to see the dead? And it's kind of playing with, with ideas of like grief and how like people can be a- addicted to their grief and, and how they let that kind of define and shape their lives in interesting ways. Um, but yeah, it's uh, very well written. It's really exciting. Um, it, it says a lot of interesting stuff about like, again, grief, but also like drug culture and things like that. Um, and also, frankly, has one of the most disgusting upsetting things i've ever read like like one of the scenes was so horrendously disgusting in and i mean this in the most complimentary way possible just just this one scene i i put uh updated uh where i was at in goodreads and i think i just had the word gross like 30 times um <laughs> and then immediately tweeted at the the author who was very nice and responded uh, very uh, nicely. But yeah, I just said, that was one of the most absolutely disgusting things I've ever read. Bravo. Um, and yeah, he he seemed to enjoy that. So uh, there is some real powerful gross-out horror in this, uh, but it also really does a good job of some, some strong emotional beats and well-written characters and all of that. So a uh, really solid uh, you know book that came out uh, just a few months ago. So. Uh, Ghost Eaters by Clay McLeod Chapman. And uh, also, uh, today, uh, earlier today, uh, I got to see a uh, kind of live stream uh, done by Grady Hendrix, a friend of the show, uh, that's kind of promoting his How to Sell a Haunted House book that is uh, coming out this week. Um, I guess it came out like today. Um, and his, his presentation was literally how to sell a haunted house. It was like how to, you know, like make, uh, make a Zillow listing, uh, using like, like, like how he opened it was he took the opening paragraph of, uh, the haunting of Hill house and rewrote it as a Zillow listing. Um, (laughs) And and mm-hmm. talked about you know what ghosts want and also like how how you sell stuff effectively, uh, in terms of real estate and you know talked about, uh, you know of course things like uh, the Amityville uh, haunting and all of that stuff. Um, it was hilarious and a delight and it's also strangely poignant. Um, I, I know that he's kind of doing like a, a tour uh, that's you know promoting his book and also like doing this uh, show as as kind of a live show. I just watched it, a, a stream that was done through Barnes & Noble that uh, my wife paid for, uh, along with a copy of the book um, that was just done through Barnes & Noble. 
But it was an absolute delight. I, you know, left work early and sat and just cackled, you know, to myself in in my basement as I watched Grady be hilarious. So, Grady, I love you. You are the best. Yeah. So, one, we obviously also definitely need to get Grady back on soon, which, I mean, I have talked to him about. Uh, so, you know, also hopefully in the works soon, or soonish. I mean, he's he's a little busy right now, but um, <laughs> can't wait to read that new book. And uh, yeah, if if he's coming to uh, a city near you, highly recommend his How to Sell a Haunted House presentation show, whatever you want to call it. Yeah, and I, I think that wraps up our episode nicely. Again, thanks for everyone who's listening. We have some really cool stuff in the works, so stay tuned and stay spooky. Stay spooky. Need even more Scream Kings? Here's our obligatory shameless social media plug. Follow us on Twitter or Instagram at Scream Kings Pod. You could also email us at ScreamKingsPodcast at gmail.com. Help us reach a wider audience of horror fans by leaving a review on iTunes or by sharing a link on social media. You can also support the show by going to patreon.com forward slash Scream Kings. Stay spooky.